Well, friends, I invite you to open your copy of God's Word with me to Luke 22 as we turn our attention to the Word of the Lord. What an honor to be with you this morning and to exalt the name of Christ in song and now to turn to the sacred text together. In Luke 22, we're gonna find ourselves beginning in verse 54. I wanna read into your hearing a familiar passage where Peter is outside the home of the high priest and in a courtyard denying Jesus. In Luke 22, our text begins in verse 54. I'll read this text into our hearing and we'll pray. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, this man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Let's pray together. Our Father exalted are you in all the earth, worthy of all blessing and praise, honor and glory. As your word is proclaimed this morning, we pray your favor upon us, that your Holy Spirit would move upon our hearts that your word would be piercing to our minds, dividing the depths of who we are that you might do and continue doing the renewing and transforming work, that we would be like your beloved son. And we pray for these that have come this morning, that we would hear with a focus and a joy and a delight in your word, humble us, lift us up. All of these things we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus, by the power of your Holy Spirit, amen. much of our spiritual flourishing and joy will be affected by how we think Christ views us as his people. When he looks at his bride for whom he gave his life, how does Christ look at us? And we need to ask ourselves this question because we would all wish our love and affections for the Lord Jesus were more conformed to his worth and glory. And we recognize we are not as strong as we think we are. We are redeemed image bearers, one day to be raised, jars of clay for now. In this life, we face the weariness of our sins and our frailties, and we become physically and emotionally and spiritually discouraged. There are snares all around us, snares that would entrap us in grief and failure. 
Dear believer, we must ask, how does Christ see us? When he looks at us, what would we behold? And I wonder if you fear that in his heart, Jesus actually despises you secretly. You know, he would never just tell you that outright. But inwardly, maybe he's very frustrated with you, just sort of putting up with you for the time being. I wonder if you fear that when he looks at you, Christ's heart would be full of disappointment. And I wonder if you fear that when you pray, he just rolls his eyes in heaven. Oh, this one again. I wonder if you have convinced yourself that while Jesus may be merciful for many people, your sin has exceeded his mercy. Some good news for you this morning in Thomas Goodwin's book, The Heart of Christ. Goodwin, a Puritan, he says, your misery can never exceed his mercy. And in this book, not only does he say Christ does not recoil away from his people when they sin, he says that Christ's pity is increased the more towards us like the heart of a father toward a child that has a loathsome disease. And I think something happens in the hearts of the believer when we meditate on the compassion of Jesus. When we think about his mercy toward us, it has a strengthening effect. Plenty of things around us have a discouraging effect. Let us look to what strengthens and stabilizes the souls of God's people. We are reminded that our standing with God does not ebb and flow depending on how our day is going. Our union with Christ is secure. And we need to know and we need to believe this because the turns and the dips on the path of discipleship can be very destabilizing. Maybe even this very week you have heard disorienting news that has shaken you. The disciples in the New Testament learned that following Jesus involves turns and dips in the path they do not foresee. They learn to trust the good shepherd who leads them. And this trust in the mysterious providence of God, this trust is forged through the agonies of failure. And I want to look this morning at Peter's worst moment recorded for us in the New Testament. The worst moment of Peter's life, where in all the events in his life, he is well known as the one denying Jesus three times in the courtyard. This is an awful episode. We all feel it. Every time I read it, there's something cringeworthy about what happens that indeed you go back, just like in a movie that you watched that had a turn you didn't want, and yet every time you see it, the script doesn't change, the same thing continues to happen, one denial after another. And yet the agonies, I think, are increased when we remember a few things. That he didn't just deny Jesus once, or even twice, but three times. And he denies Jesus with Jesus nearby, not far away. Peter's outside. Jesus is inside the high priest residence. He denies Jesus after Jesus has said, you are going to deny me three times. That very night when it had been predicted, it is fulfilled he denies Jesus after having insisted. In verse 33, verse 33, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Peter's insistence here demonstrates while Jesus has made a prediction, Peter does not foresee himself ever doing what Jesus said he would do. Now, all four gospels tell us of Peter's denials. That's interesting. 
Because not often do all four Gospels tell you something a disciple did. But Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all tell us Peter denied Jesus three times in the courtyard of the high priest, but Luke's account tells us something unique. Luke tells us in verse 61 that after the three denials, Jesus turned and looked at Peter. We're going to meditate together on that moment, and we have to set the scene. And in verses 54 to 55, the location of Peter is clear. In verses 54 to 55, he arrives outside the home of Caiaphas, the high priest of Israel. In verse 54, they seized him, Jesus, led him away. That's the arrest in Gethsemane. They bring Jesus eventually to the high priest's home, that's Caiaphas' house, and Peter follows at a distance. Matthew 26 tells us Peter followed to see how the thing would end. So he's curious. Just minutes earlier, he had been interested in the Garden of Gethsemane of drawing a sword to defend Jesus. Jesus is now when the kingdom is going to come with all of its power and might. Now, that did not go the way Peter thought. Put away your sword, Peter. Heals the high priest servant's ear. And Peter, no doubt flabbergasted and disoriented by the events of Gethsemane, he follows to see where this thing is going to go. It tells us in verse 55, when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. He's warming himself alongside the others present, and then in verses 56 through 60, a series of denials. So his location in verses 54 to 55, and a series of three denials. The first comes by prompt, prompted by a question from a servant girl. She sees him in the light of the fire. See, the fire had a twofold effect. It both warmed him and exposed him. He was fine with the former, less comfortable with the latter. She's looking very closely at him, just staring. Must have felt very awkward. Why is she staring at me? But knowing who he is and who he belongs to that's inside being interrogated, this would not have been a good moment. This man was also with him, she says, but he denied it, saying, woman, I do not know him. What a brazen claim. Woman, I do not know him. The fact that that utterance comes from his lips is staggering for the reader who sees Peter saying earlier, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, and now I do not know him. In verse 58, a little while later, someone else came and said, you're also one of them, therefore meaning the disciples that belong to Jesus, Peter said, man, I am not, I am not, when we know that according to the Gospels, he had been a chief leader among them, talking so much, in many cases more than he should have, and therefore among the disciples, certainly a name easily recognized, and he says, they, they're not with me, I'm not with them. We see this second denial, and then some time passes. In verse 59, it tells us an interval of about an hour. I bet Peter thought he was in the clear at this point. Two denials, didn't get arrested, didn't get dragged away. Two denials, some time passes. About an hour, another person speaks. Verse 59, certainly this man was with him, for he too is a Galilean. Well, that person speaks with a lot of confidence. Certainly, he says, but Peter's accent, you know, he's been talking even, even briefly, and it stands out. Why is a Galilean? present in the southern part of the promised land in Jerusalem, in the high priest's courtyard, in the middle of the night, around a fire after Jesus has been brought in. This is very strange. And Peter says, 
in denial in verse 60, man, I do not know what you are talking about. You see, these three who have accused Peter of belonging to Jesus, they're reading the room. They recognize, or the outside room that is, they're looking here at the scene and they think, something's not right. One of these things is not like the others. This guy, why is he here? And immediately, while Peter was still speaking, the rooster crowed. So that pierces the tension of the moment, and we don't know precisely the spot where Jesus was standing when the next thing happened. But in verses 61 to 62, there's a remembrance of Peter. We've seen his location, the denials, and now the remembrance of Peter in verses 61 and 62, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. There's a visual exchange. Luke alone tells us this. It's worth thinking about. A visual exchange between Jesus and Peter. And then Peter remembers. No doubt the rooster crowing, in addition to the visual exchange, prompts the remembrance. Did you notice how in verse 61, though, it doesn't use the name Jesus? When Luke narrates this, he doesn't say Jesus turned and looked at Peter, but we know it's obvious. Of course that's who did he narrates it by saying the Lord turned and looked at Peter. The Lord is who Jesus is. Luke narrates this event with the title and not the name. And in, in verse 61, Jesus is the master and the supreme one on trial being interrogated and false witnesses being brought against him. We know from the other gospels They've already engaged in some beating and smacking behavior in the, in the high priest's residence. The Lord looked at Peter. Jesus is Lord even though Peter has just denied him. In fact, it's the lordship of Jesus that makes Peter's denial so outrageous. The wording in verse 61 gives Jesus' action in a pair of verbs. The Lord turned and looked. The verb turned is used seven times in the Gospel of Luke. In every case, Jesus is the subject. Five of them occur right before our passage and one afterward. In chapter seven, verse nine, Jesus turned to a crowd and he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. It's a great thing to say after turning. Chapter 744, Jesus turned toward a woman and he said to the host of the home, do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. In chapter 955, Jesus turned and he spoke a rebuke to his disciples. James and John thought it was time for fire to consume some Samaritan villages. Jesus turned and rebuked them. In chapter 10, 23, Jesus turned to his disciples and he said, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. In chapter 14, 25, Jesus turned to the great crowds and he said, if anyone comes to me and he doesn't hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Those are the five before our passage. The one that comes after our passage is in chapter 23, 28. Jesus turned to a multitude of people who were lamenting for him, and he said, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, weep for yourselves and for your children. 
In six of the seven occurrences, Jesus turns and he always speaks. He turns and he speaks, and he turns and he speaks, except here. This is the only place in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus turned and he looked. Because what had been said had been said much earlier. I tell you, Peter, before this night ends, three times you will deny me. And yet in the same sense, we know looks can communicate. Children know this if their parent has ever given them the look. Your laughter tells me you know exactly what the look is. You probably received it from time to time. If you're a parent, you've given it. The look can communicate. We are accustomed to reading people's facial cues. A parent's mouth doesn't always have to speak because the face is sufficient. And we know looks can communicate. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. And have you ever thought about what the look would have been on Jesus' face? Maybe a look of disbelief. I can't believe you would do this to me, Peter. Maybe a look of disgust. Peter, I am so repulsed by you. Maybe a look of cold indifference. I don't even care what you do, Peter. I'm not even bothering him with you anymore. Maybe a look of condescension. I told you so, Peter. You think you're so committed. You think you're so strong. Here you are, Peter. Again, foot in mouth. Maybe a look of harshness. Peter, you're so pathetic. What a loser of a disciple you've turned out to be. Each of those examples is based on the assumption that the look was totally negative. What if it wasn't? Think about what leads up to this episode with Peter. Verses 31, 32, same chapter. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when, when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus loves Peter. You know what Jesus is not? Jesus is not surprised by Peter. Peter is surprised by Peter. <laughs> Jesus is not. He's been praying for Peter. He loves this disciple. In verse 34, Jesus has predicted exactly what transpired in the courtyard to the detail. The number of denials, the crowing of the rooster, the night it occurs, these details are known by Christ, declared by Christ. And Jesus told Peter, you're going to fail tonight. But the good news for Peter is that Jesus is not going to fail. Peter has sinned in the courtyard and Jesus is going on the cross to make atonement for all of Peter's sins, including the sins recently committed outside Caiaphas' home. On the third day, Jesus will rise from the dead in victory and power. And in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 5, Jesus will appear after his resurrection to Peter. At the end of John's gospel, Peter is restored in a series of three questions and answers, no doubt to mirror the three denials Peter committed in the courtyard. In verse 61, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. This is not a look of reproach. This is not a look of disbelief. This is not a look of surprise. This is a look that prompts remembrance and sorrow. We know the remembrance is true because Luke says Peter remembered. And we know the sorrow takes place 
because deep sorrow is the outcome the narrator reports. He left the courtyard and wept bitterly, wept bitterly. That is not a misty-eyed moment. He didn't get just a little teary-eyed. I think there's something in my tear duct kind of, here is Peter undone. He has beheld the compassion and love of the Lord. The kindness of Christ is not only evident in the deeds toward the disciples, the Lord turns in this moment of Peter's great failure, and the Lord turns in the midst of everything that is going on. You know who is on the mind of Jesus? Peter. And the Lord turned and he looked at him. What did Peter see when he looked into the face of Christ? People in church history have thought a lot about this. And I want you to hear from some of them. Alexander McLaren is a Scottish Baptist minister in the 1800s. And he says about verse 61, there is nothing that brings godly sorrow so surely as a glimpse of Christ's love. McLaren says, you may hammer at a man's heart with law, principle, and moral duty and all the rest of it. And you may get him to feel that he is a very poor creature. But unless the sunshine of Christ's love shines upon him, there will be no melting. And what McLaren is saying about verse 61 is here, the look of Christ has a melting effect upon this overconfident, boldly denying disciple. Charles Spurgeon said in the 1800s, I see in our Lord's looking upon Peter a wondrously thoughtful love. Spurgeon says, if I might be permitted to humbly read what was on the master's face, it was this. Thou hast denied me, but I look upon thee as mine. John Gill was an English Baptist minister in the 1700s. So we're working backward, right? Backward in the 1700s, Gill says, this was a look not of wrath or resentment, but of love and mercy. And power went with it, Gill says, not only to signal to Peter to put him in remembrance, but a melting look to him, to convince and humble him that he might be brought to repentance. John Calvin says in the 1500s, it is proper to observe, verse 61, is no ordinary look, but in looking to Peter, Jesus added to his eyes the efficacy of the Spirit, and thus by the rays of his grace, penetrated Peter's heart in the courtyard of the high priest. Augustine says in the 300s, that mercy of God is prerequisite for repentance. And he says about verse 61, Peter, that he might be enabled to weep bitterly, the Lord looked at him. Lastly, Ambrose of Milan in the 300s, he says of verse 61, Peter denied the first time and he did not cry because the Lord had not looked at him. He denied a second time and he did not cry for the Lord had not looked at him yet. He denied a third time. Jesus looked at him and he cried bitterly. And then Ambrose says, look at us, Lord Jesus, that we might know how to mourn for our sin. In this string of excerpts from these theologians of history, they help to make the point that interpreters have noticed that he looked at Peter and they've thought, what would it be that Peter saw, if not resentment and wrath and surprise? What is it upon the compassionate face of Christ that would have meant so much for Peter? Over and over again, these interpreters, these theologians, say the same kind of things. Peter has beheld the tender and sad 
compassionate and merciful face of Jesus. Jesus would take no delight in being denied. Oh, there's a a sadness and a grief in the moment, for sure. But tempered with compassion and love, Jesus full of pity and power. When Peter leaves the courtyard, we do not hear Peter's name for the rest of Luke 22. Nor does Peter appear in Luke 23. In Luke 23, that's the chapter of Jesus' crucifixion and burial. No Peter to be found. The next time we see Peter's name in Luke's gospel is chapter 24, 12. He is running to an empty tomb. And later on that Sunday, Peter will encounter Jesus. The gospel of Mark said to the women to prepare Peter for this. In Mark 16, the angel told the women who came and could not find the body of Jesus, he said, go tell his disciples and Peter that he, Jesus, is going before you to Galilee. You will see him just as he told you. The angel mentions there the disciples and Peter. And I don't think that's because Peter is now separate from the group. Peter is still a disciple of Jesus. I think Peter is named for emphasis. It would seem to be the case that this is the idea. Go tell the disciples, and especially Peter, that Jesus is coming. Peter needs to know that Jesus is coming for him. He's a sinner pursued by grace, the grace of Jesus, who has taken all of Peter's sin and shame. Peter is a failure who comes face to face with the Christ who's come to give his life for failures. Peter, having spurned the Holy One of God, has come face to face with the compassion and mercy of the tender-hearted Savior of sinners who said, I am gentle and lowly in heart, come to me. You see, the thing for Peter is that he flees the courtyard physically and he weeps bitterly. What Peter must do in seeing the look of Christ, though, is be someone in his heart who will be restored and come to Christ. This is still good news for Peter. Jesus has come for failures and sinners. He has come for the weak and the frail. He has come for the deniers and the guilty. This does not repel him. He has come for this. This is good news for us because, friend, Christ cannot look onto his people without a heart of steadfast love. What will you do when you fail? What will you do when your sinful capacities and impulses take you by surprise like they did Peter? What will we do when we become freshly aware of how overconfident we can be and how weak we truly are? What will be our recourse when our shame ensnares us? When we realize I've been believing the lies of the enemy, I've spurned the Holy One of God, we must look to Christ who has turned to us first. J.C. Ryle in the 1800s, he says, if the heart of Jesus was so gracious to Peter when Jesus was a prisoner, we surely need not think it is less gracious as he sits in glory at the right hand of God. Oh, we have such a gracious and merciful Savior. Look to Christ. Turn to him that you might find he has first turned to you. He will not look away. Turn to Christ. He will not refuse you. Weep over your sin and bitterly. His mercy melts the hardest of hearts. 
His compassion stirs the embers that you thought had gone cold for good. This is why the Apostle Paul says in Romans 2 verse 4, the kindness of God leads us to repentance. It is good and right that before the law of God we recognize our guilt and our poor estate, but how good it is that we can sing that he has seen our poor estate and has shed his own blood for our souls. It is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. What we long for and what we should pray for is that the gracious look of Christ would bring to us godly sorrow. Oh, we wish in that moment we knew all of what was in Peter's heart. We know what would develop for Peter, and it is really good news that we have the aftermath of the scene in the courtyard. We know of the resurrection of Christ and the appearances and the restoration of Peter. Oh, and then when you get to Book of Acts, oh, there's a different Peter. This is a Peter who has been looked upon with the mercy and reconciling grace of God, and it strengthens Peter. He's ready to suffer and persevere. He had said earlier in verse 33, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. And he would. He would. It wouldn't be that very night. But the compassion and sustaining power of Christ would ensure the faithfulness of Peter and the long-suffering nature of his discipleship. Peter would hold fast to the Savior who turned first to him. Oh, that the look of Christ would come upon us to know that Christ has loved us. And on the cross, he took all our sin and shame. What shall we do when we recognize our weakness and our sins, our shame and our failing? Turn your eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray that the life and failings of Peter, that the strength and glory of Christ would be an encouragement to us as we have heard and meditated on your word. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would seal this word from Luke 22 into our hearts that you might look upon us with the tenderness and compassion that characterize the life of your son. And we thank you for the ministry of Jesus that tells us of what happens beyond this courtyard scene. We see your love and mercy. We see the abundant, steadfast grace and kindness toward your people. Lord, today, look upon us that we might have a right sense of our sin, a renewed sense of our great need, and to know the greater Savior of exceeding mercy and kindness that loves us and has turned toward us first. We thank you for Christ, for his mercy in our helpless estate. In his name we pray these things, amen.